Welcome back to What the Midwife Said, the podcast about how babies and families are made. I'm your host, Leah Hazard, and I'm a mother, a writer, and yes, I'm a midwife too. In this series, I'll be speaking to some fascinating guests about their experiences of pregnancy, birth, and parenthood, from fertility and loss, to the challenges of navigating our maternity services, to the joys and traumas of raising children in a changing world. No judgment and no shame, just what the midwife said. Today's guest is Robin Morgan Bentley. I have been desperate to chat to Robin for ages. Not only is he the author of two cracking thrillers, The Wreckage and the soon-to-be-released The Other Parents, he's also the senior editorial manager at Audible, so he's basically the king of audiobooks. And he's also a very special dad to a very special little guy called Saul. Robin's here to talk about his journey to parenthood through surrogacy. Imagine you turn up to a Weatherspoons or to a pub and it really was that, you know, you drive, we were driving up and down the country to these different events. Um, this uh, Rachel who carried Solly uh, lives in Derbyshire, so we went to um, uh, a pub in Derbyshire. Everyone's got name badges, it's all a bit awkward at the start. Everything was very open, we all went to everything um, and uh, that was what everyone wanted. So we, were, we went to um, every scan, um, we even, you know, we went up uh, last minute one day towards the end of the pregnancy when she was a bit concerned that she wasn't feeling as much movement. We were there every step of the way and luckily um, we were there for the birth as well, although I do feel if she'd have gone into labour two or three days later with Covid restrictions that wouldn't have been the case. He and his partner have been smashing stereotypes at every turn. Well, well, hi, Robin. It's great to kind Hello. of cyber meet you in a way. Yes. Yeah, we've we've talked lots on Twitter and things, but it's nice to see your face and chat properly. Yeah, it really is. I feel like um, our relationship is I'm like some weird, like virtual Jewish auntie because every time you post pictures of your gorgeous baby Saul, I just want to eat those cheeks and like squeeze him and squish him. He's just so adorable. That's exactly how I see you, Leah. A virtual <laughs> Jewish auntie, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, no, we, we post a lot of pictures quite deliberately. We can talk about that in a bit if you want. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. It's, and, it's really nice um, seeing your comments. How old is he now? Yeah, he is, um, he's coming up, to, he's 18 months in a month. Um, I think, I think when you get to 18 months, you can stop quoting the months and just say either 18 months or two which I'm quite looking forward to because it's a bit awkward when you have to kind of work out is it 15 months 16 months but he's he's now just coming up to 18 months wow and I would imagine I mean any 18 month old is like a complete handful how how is that going for you yes he is a whirlwind um it's funny my husband and I went to um, a kind of uh, pre- an antenatal class before he was born, and one of the exercises they did, they had us all sitting around in a circle, and and it was quite the, the leader was quite earnest, and and she was saying, um, you know, what's your biggest hope for your child? And some people were kind of mirroring that earn, uh, earnest uh, question with, you know, I really want him to be really good at the piano. I really want her to be sporty, and. My husband and I just looked at each other and, and we both said the word naughty. Our, our first instinct was like, we just want a naughty kid. And I think I think it's the kind of thing you say in advance and the idea of it is better than the reality. But I think we were both, we were both naughty kids and uh, we're certainly still not um, 
we're not shy so uh, we kind of yeah. asked for it I think <laughs> yeah it's a bit be careful what you wish for I guess right. so if he's 18 months so you've you've pretty much kind of predominantly been parenting in lockdown almost from the beginning then is that right on and off yeah so he was literally he was literally born uh, Boris dear Boris uh, made uh, his announcement for the first lockdown um, on a on a on a Monday I think and then the Tuesday he was born so it was like really you know he people talk about lockdown babies he was one of the babies born on that very first or second day of lockdown yeah yeah that's phenomenal and um I mean such a difficult year we'll go back to kind of the beginning of your parenting story but just we we, we can't kind of have a chat about parenting without talking about um, what a tough year it's been for everybody who's had a baby in lockdown and who's been kind of parenting through COVID. So how how are you guys getting on with sort of working and fathering and just kind of not losing your minds? Well, look, I think it's it's a really hard thing for everyone, right? Whatever the scenario, becoming a parent for the first time, you know, you anticipate it um, and you hope for it often um, and you're excited for it. Um and that so many things are wonderful and, and so many things are, are better than expected. But it's also really hard. And it, it doesn't matter whether a baby's born in the middle of a pandemic or or not. You know, it's it, nothing really prepares you for how challenging it is. And my husband and I talk about, um, you know, being dads is like the most wonderful thing, but also definitely the hardest thing we've done. And so much harder than any work or any book writing we've done or anything like that. It's it's really hard. Um, and so, yeah, there's been a few uh, additional difficulties because of lockdown. Um, we, uh, Solly didn't meet any of his extended family or anyone other than us, really. And and Rachel, who the surrogate who carried him, um, for the first I don't know what it was. Couple, of, I, you lose track of time, but it was a couple of months or three months, and we were just doing this uh, sort of holding him up to the window of his grandparents and 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 they were you know you kind of make the best of it and I think I think maybe when first lockdown happened it was so novel it was so scary everyone was taking it very seriously we kind of got on got on with it because you're okay this is a really serious situation we need to abide by the rules um the pediatrician I think it's a pediatrician who kind of checked does little checks um when the baby's born just said he cannot you have to be really careful he cannot be held by anyone other than the two of you and so we kind of we we, we took that advice so it was hard it was hard not having um someone you know people coming around and maybe cooking you a meal or which is something that we've always done with our siblings when they had babies and things like that uh, but on the other hand, there was something really nice about it as well. We were kind of in this little cocoon, the three of us, um, and we had to just figure it all out ourselves, all three of us together um, in our flat in London. We just had to, we had to figure it out. We didn't have anyone trying to tell us what to do, any kind of mothers-in-law on either side coming in and saying, oh, no, you have to put them on the front. And you're like, no, 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 that's the 80s now. It's That's bad. Um, yeah, no annoying Jewish aunties coming in and telling no you to do it this way. No annoying Jewish aunties at all. Um, so there, there were plus, and then we, we did we did shared parental leave, so we did uh, uh, six months each. But when the other person was at work, he was just in the next room, and that was that was really nice and made the whole thing less scary I think because even though the other person was working you knew that he was there just to in case you know things were getting wild um so yeah mixed 
Yeah, mixed. I mean, I think that's a really diplomatic way of, of putting it. And, and what you've described is, I think, such a common scenario for everybody parenting kids of any age in lockdown. It's just it's just kind of getting by day to day and, and figuring it out as you go along. And, and just to kind of go back to um, kind of what we're here to talk about in a way, although I could talk to you about so many things, um, you and your lovely husband, Paul, have kind of had to figure out this whole thing as you go along from the very beginning because as you've said um you know you've you've had Saul by surrogacy and it's not the most traditional way to come to having a family even putting aside having to have a family in the pandemic and all the rest of it so maybe we maybe this is a good chance to kind of go right back to the beginning um to young Robin or younger Robin I should say um and think (laughs) yeah of course I mean we're all very young here very glamorous um and and maybe talk a little bit about what your earlier attitudes to parenting were I mean were you the kind of guy who always wanted to be a dad or saw yourself having a big family even before you met Paul before this became a reality yeah, it's it's a really good question, and I think it's one that's kind of um, inextricably linked with coming to terms with being gay. Um, not for all gay men, everyone's experience is different, but certainly for me and and for Paul, um, as young children, I, I don't know how much you think about this as young children, but it was kind of yeah, of course you want to have children, and of course you want to um, start a family. That's that's fun, and that's what. That's, you know, we both lived in families with lots of siblings and, uh, of course, you grew up with that expectation. And then you and then you start to come to terms with the fact that you're gay, which is such a lot for everyone, I think. Um, and one of those key things is, oh, does that mean I'm not going to be a parent? In fact, it's not even that question. It wasn't even that question for me. It was, if, I, if, I, if I'm gay, I can't be a dad. Um, and that, at 13, 14, 15... 16, 17, 18 is, is really tough. Um, uh, and you have a kind of, I always talk about it like a grieving process. You kind of, you have to sort of weigh everything up. And because I didn't really see a practical and realistic way to be- become a parent as a gay man, I, was, I, I just felt like I had to kind of see it as like, okay, well, that's just something you're not going to be able to do, but you've got lots of other good stuff going on. Um, so... Yeah, it's it, it is hard, and 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 I, I mentioned at the beginning about all the pictures we post on Twitter, and the main reason we do that is because I want there to be other uh, gay teenagers or people that, for whatever reason, feel like they might not be able to have children, to be able to see us and see that it is possible. I didn't have that as a teenager. I kind of vaguely knew mm-hmm. that maybe kind of celebrities in in California sometimes did some seemingly unethical things to get children. But mm-hmm. I never had um, a role model, someone that I thought looked like the person I could become that had started a family. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our maybe younger listeners, even younger than you and I, if I'm my dad, um, might not quite understand or be aware that these visible role models for tradi- untraditional families, queer families, gay families were not really around until maybe really even the last say 10 years, maybe even just five years. I mean, you know, I remember when Elton John and, and David Furnish um, became parents and that, I think that was an awfully long time ago. And that was seen as kind of unusual at the time. And, you know, Tom Daly, very visible in recent weeks, um, you know, and his husband had a baby, I think by surrogacy. And 
that's maybe starting to become a bit more of a kind of visible, normalized thing. But for, for people of a just slightly older generation, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it, it really was not, it didn't seem like a possible option, did it? Yeah, and that was, um, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but that was one of the things that my mum found really difficult when I came out, and you hear this story a lot. Her One of her first reactions was, but you'll be such, you'd, you'd have been such a good dad. You'd have been, you're like, you, you're made to be a dad. Um, and, and that's hard, and it kind of reinforces, you know, kind of insecurities that you have about it. And then, yeah, I can remember saying, oh, look, people do it. Um, but the reaction is, oh, come on, Elton John. That's always the example people give, and maybe now a bit more Tom Daly. But it it seems quite remote that, and they certainly, as far as I know, did surrogacy in a very different way um, to the way we did it. It just doesn't feel like something that happens to people that aren't, it didn't feel like something that people happened to people that weren't Elton John, if you know what I mean. Mm. So how did we get from A to B then? I mean, um, obviously grew up maybe started coming to terms with um your kind of gender identity and what that would mean for you met Paul and then presumably there would have been some conversation at some point or maybe some kind of gradual awareness with him that you both wanted a family and this is how you would do it I mean how did that kind of play out for you yeah people have asked us this before it's really hard to actually we don't I don't remember a specific conversation knowing us I think it probably would have been quite quite early on quite intense quite early um we're both very similar in that way um and I can imagine it coming up pretty early on I don't remember a specific conversation but it was always there as soon as um we started dating seriously and our relationship was progressing it was always there as something we hoped to do in the future we just didn't we didn't know how we knew it was going to be hard however we did it but we thought let's just do one thing at a time let's get to know each other and then we got married and we found a place to live together and and then and then we started thinking about it Mm. and I mean I think a lot of people think maybe of surrogacy as being a bit unusual, a bit eccentric, but actually what you've just described is such a classic narrative for any um, new couple in love to start building a family and thinking about having a family. It's very seldom just one conversation. It's often a kind of gradual awareness and sort of agreement, maybe tacit agreement that this is just the way things will go. I think it's important as well to point out that even though this is an unusual route to parenthood, all the... um, the, the growth of that thought and the, the narrative leading up to it couldn't be more universal in a sense. It's really, uh, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. We're so traditional in, in so many ways in terms of our family values. Um, and then I'd also say that um, uh, it, it, we, we went an unconventional route or a slightly different route to lots of people, but increasingly we're finding lots of our friends, whether they're gay or they're straight, it's not a simple ride. It's not a simple ride having a child. You know, we have lots of friends who have been open about having to go through IVF or have, you know, found, assumed that it would be very, very easy to fall pregnant, uh, uh, you know, a man and a woman through, you know, through sex. And it hasn't. Um, so we don't, I, we don't feel that different in that sense. So our obstacles have been different and maybe more anticipated than a straight couple's would be. But to be honest, like people are having children later. I'm going to obviously, uh, you know, we're in our mid to late thirties. Everywhere we go, we hear stories of, of, uh, you know, IVF and things like that. So everything's universal about our story, really. 
Yeah, it really is, isn't it? And the impulse to have a family is perhaps the most universal kind of most most basic impulse that we have. So you've you've reached this decision or had sort of maybe numerous conversations that this is the road you're going to go down. For those of us who don't know, once you've decided to travel down the route of surrogacy, where do you start or where did you start? How did that work for you? Yeah. Well, I'll rewind slightly because the first conversation we had, the first big decision we needed to make was whether we wanted to do surrogacy or adoption. And that was a really, that was, that was like the first year of talking about it and looking into it. And I'll be honest, like I went into it and, and my husband did really assuming that adoption was the right thing to do. It felt like the ethical, ethically right choice. Um, and we were probably a bit judgmental about people that chose to go through surrogacy because we didn't have the information. Um, we did lots and lots of research into adoption and surrogacy and found, I don't know whether it's unfortunately or fortunately, but adoption is super hard in the UK these days. The, the, the really positive side is that everything is done to keep children with, their, with a member of their birth family. You know, the, the challenging side to that is it is hard. And I, I do think it's particularly hard for a gay couple who want to adopt a baby. Partic- you know, there's there, there's a lot of prejudice um, in the system. There's a lot of um, questions asked about whether men can look after babies. And it was just something that we couldn't get our heads around and we couldn't face the, the, the discrimination and the fight, basically. And then simultaneously, we were looking into surrogacy and finding that actually there's a really um, good way to do it and it can be done in a really altruistic way in the UK. Um, and so we kind of tentatively, tentatively started looking at it. And the way we started, like most people, was just with Google searches. We were listening to podcasts. There was a couple of podcasts that I found really useful, um, just bringing it all to life, hearing you know actual stories of people that have had children through surrogacy that aren't Elton John or Tom Daly, although Tom Daly actually uh, and his husband have got a really good podcast as well. Um, and uh, we, in fact, we came across an organisation called Surrogacy UK. Um, Surrogacy UK is a non-for-profit organisation um, that... Um, essentially uh, organises social events for uh, women who want to be surrogates and people that want to become parents. And they're called, within this community, they're called intended parents. So that might be gay couples. It could be a straight couple. It could be, uh, and the law has recently changed, it could be a single single man or a single woman as well. Um, And so essentially, we went through the process of uh, application there. Um, there's a few th- sort of quirks. I don't know if quirks is the right word. Um, technicalities to the law in the UK when it comes to surrogacy that make it uh, different to how it's done in America and, the, and Canada. So uh, it, is, it is illegal in the UK to pay a woman um, to carry a baby for you. It's, a, it's illegal to advertise or advertise because you're looking for a surrogate or advertise your yourself as a surrogate um everything is done altruistically um and so the ethos of this organization surrogacy uk is surrogacy through friendship you meet people who are like-minded both uh surrogates and intended parents and then you hopefully find a connection whereby you meet a fam you meet a woman or you meet a woman and her family who who want to help you it's it's altruistic we pay uh the the parents will pay the surrogates expenses of course so they're not in any way out of pocket so that and that that could be pretty broad from uh costs of medical appointments loss of earnings maternity clothes and um, things like that but but it's all based on friendship um mm. rather and than did you know uh, commercial that- women 
did you know when you met um, your surrogate that that this friendship was there? I mean, what was that like? Did you kind of hit it off straight away? Yeah, or? it's oh God. It's a really um, it, it's a it's a really interesting social experience the way we did it. Right. So imagine you turn up to a Weatherspoons or to a pub and it really was that you know you drive we were driving up and down the country to these different events um this uh Rachel who uh, carried Solly uh, lives in Derbyshire so we went to um uh a pub in Derbyshire everyone's got name badges it's all a bit awkward at the start like oh how do you start talking it's like this weird kind of adult dating scenario mm. you don't really know who's there for what you don't know oh it's just a bit awkward and you have a couple of uh, some people have a couple of drinks and then it is you start loosening up and then um the connection with Rachel um and her husband James was just, yeah it was immediate uh we just um they were they were standing by the, I remember it, it is like dating they were standing by the, the bar we were kind of hovering by the bar we kind of all looked at each other and then sort of went over and started chatting and it was it did feel very easy very quickly and actually at the time we met Rachel she was in the process of um looking to help another couple so she wasn't actually um you know looking to meet a couple to help at that point which actually took the pressure off a bit because we were just getting to know them we were just you know making friends and um and that's and that's how that started. And then we met them again at a, a similar social. And Rachel brought her two boys, uh, Charlie and Jack. And and if having kids c- can make any situation a bit less awkward, and you know we were kind of colouring in with Charlie and um, you know playing football with Jack, and it just it all just felt quite quite natural. Mm, I mean, it, it sounds really lovely and natural, but um, again, such an unusual, like you say, unusual dynamic. And and I can see how initially would be super awkward. I mean, from from her point of view, from Rachel's point of view, obviously she's not here to kind of speak for herself. But from what she explained to you, what were her reasons for wanting to enter into this arrangement? Yeah, it's a it's it's a question that we often uh, get asked. Um, for, for a lot of women, it's very hard to imagine wanting to be a surrogate, and I think there's loads of reasons. I think for Rachel, there are a few things. Um, firstly, her sister had been a surrogate previously, um, and so she was inspired by what her sister had done. Um, and secondly, she just quite enjoys being pregnant um, and and having a bump and giving birth. And I and I I think for some women that's that's hard to um, hard to imagine. I know obviously some women find pregnancy very difficult, but others I, she just loves. You know, she talks about missing the bump since giving birth to Solly, and she loves just sitting on the sofa and kind of just holding her bump and. Um, that she you know she loves her body while she's pregnant and she just feels great and um so I, you know i think she did it uh, inspired by her sister because she wanted to help others but also because it was a, a great experience for her mm, yeah i mean it's, it sounds like um something that kind of worked for everybody in a way and i guess that's the ideal isn't it really you want everybody to feel good about it and everybody to be doing it for the, the right reasons whatever those reasons are um and it's great that you found somebody who kind of matched those ideals but when you started sharing this arrangement with family and friends like this is what we're doing this is gonna how we're gonna have a baby what kind of responses did you get did you meet any resistance or was it sort of like polite curiosity or or what happened uh, I they, very mixed depending on who we were talking to and uh, uh, age and generation and mm. um, my husband and I are both Jewish from, from very traditional Jewish families so it's certainly 
the first time our families had kind of heard about this as as a, a a Jewish way to becoming a family. Um, I'm sure you'll understand what I mean by that. Um, yeah. uh, generally really positive though, really kind of um, intrigued, um, worried as well, because the law is complicated in the UK at the moment. So um, at, at the moment, as it stands, um, when uh, a surrogate gives birth, she is the legal mother of the baby, even though... In, in a lot of cases, she's not genetically linked to the baby, and obviously, you know, this isn't her child. And then where the surrogate's married as well, which Rachel is, her husband is the legal father. He, he, he's not carried the baby. He's not, um, he doesn't have any uh, genetic link to the baby at all. So there's a lot of, you get a lot of questions about, like, you know, understandable, but also horrible questions, like, what if she keeps the baby? And it's, mm. um, what we find actually is that, the anxiety is also like massively on the other side because actually the burden is with the woman that's given birth. So this doesn't happen, but once in a million, you know, you hear about these crazy stories, just like in any walk of life, where uh, there's one story where a baby was born with a disability unexpectedly, and the um, uh, the intended parents didn't want the baby anymore. And then the, this amazing woman, the surrogate who'd given birth, the baby is is left with a child that isn't hers and with this dilemma about what to do. And so that there's a lot of questions about, like, oh, is it legal? Or are you sure, like, um, have you looked into this properly? Like, mm. do you need to do this properly? Don't just do this whimsically. And that's frustrating because it's the least whimsical thing ever. Yeah. Um, with, a gay couple never has a child from having um, uh, one extra glass of wine in an evening, you know? So, yes, um, yeah. It's not just something that just happens by accident that you right. just don't think about, sure. Yeah, um, and then you know, elderly members of our family. I've got um, very close to grandma, who's um, I, I won't reveal her age; she'd be devastated. <laughs> but she's she's not she's uh, you know older, um, yeah, and sure. she uh, she was just totally bewildered by it. Took took never really has never really got her head around it, the science of it, um, the logistics of it. She just sees Rachel as this angel goddess this amazing woman who's given us a gift which she is um and is just she's actually really unwell and she's been unwell during um the pandemic and um we we try and take him frequently to go and see her and her face just lights up he's just i think that's important as well like it doesn't matter ultimately then you have a child and it doesn't matter how you've got the child or whether it's through natural conception or ivf or surrogacy or adoption everything's the same once the baby arrives really you've just got this child and a child that brings so much joy to us but also to our extended family so we have a lot to thank Rachel for. Absolutely I mean she does sound like a, a, a very altruistic person from what you've said um, I mean I can understand in a sense family and friends being a bit concerned just because you know what you what you don't understand you often fear and just from a professional point of view as a midwife I mean I'm lucky to know a bit more about surrogacy to be able to speak to people like you but I can imagine a lot of my colleagues even as well wouldn't quite know what to make of um a kind of surrogacy threesome if you will you know the two intended parents and the surrogate and sort of how to communicate and what language to use around that and I'm really interested to hear Robin what your encounters were with the NHS I mean I'm guessing most of the pregnancy was before COVID hit so did you and Paul have the opportunity to go to any appointments or yeah. you know what what was your kind of interaction like with the service so um 
when you're getting uh, when you're getting to know that's when you're getting to know a surrogate is kind of the kind of uh community term for when you're sort of this it's usually at least three months where you're just kind of um spending time as families together but also asking important questions of each other about what would we do if this happened and what would we do if that happened and one of the questions is how present does the surrogate and the parents want to be at all the appointments and at the birth? Um, so it's very much about making sure that, that the surrogate is very comfortable. Like, for example, would a surrogate really want a home birth? And are the parent, the intended parents happy with that? Um, would the surrogate want her husband at the birth? Um, and obviously we would be comfortable with that. So in our case, we everything was very open. We all went to everything. Um, and uh, that was what everyone wanted. So we, were, we went to... Um, every scan um we even you know we went up uh up last minute one day towards the end of the pregnancy when she was a bit concerned that she wasn't feeling as much movement we were there every step of the way and luckily um we were there for the birth as well although i do feel if she'd have gone into labor two or three days later with covid restrictions that wouldn't have been the case um in terms of midwives our experience was amazing really really amazing um but that isn't that isn't universal. And one piece of yeah. advice that we got, and I would give to anyone else listening to this that's uh, thinking about surrogacy or going through surrogacy, is plan ahead um, and get in touch with the uh, with the team uh, at the hospital in the same way as anyone would have a birth plan. But I think it's particularly important, or uh, you know, particularly important. We had a meeting with the head of midwifery at the hospital in Chesterfield, where uh, Rachel was going to give birth. We did that. I think something you know when she was six months pregnant or something like that. Lovely woman um, who wasn't really very familiar with surrogacy at all. There'd been a few cases. But she came in and put her hands up and said, I don't know how this works. Explain, explain it to me. And so we had a long meeting with her and she documented everything. And then she sent a memo around to her whole team um, because she's like, you know, I might not be there on the day and I don't want anyone, any uh, other midwives not really knowing what to do. Um, and so when we got there, they were all kind of expecting us. They all knew um, I have to say it was maybe an advantage of being in a smaller hospital. I don't know if the experience would be different in a very busy London hospital. Um, so everyone was very uh, wonderful and accepting. And, you know, they were, I, I re- you know, remember clearly the midwives just, it's a, it's a different day at work for them as well. It's a very, mm-hmm. it was, it was quite kind of interesting for a lot of them and they were asking questions and, and, you know, I, I can remember overhearing a conversation between two midwives about how amazing it was and just, mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it, it's all been very positive. Um, we, we occasionally have got little comments here and there at other medical appointments. So, you know, you go for um, health visitor checks and everything was a bit confused. And, um, you know, they thought that Rachel lived at our house and that we would get a call saying, can I speak to Rachel, please? Um, and they wouldn't understand why they couldn't speak to the mother. And we'd say, there is no mother. And then they'd say, what do you mean there's no mother? So we, we've definitely definitely had a bit of that and awkward conversations about genetics where it's been like so is there any family history of of so-and-so and and and, um solly uh uh was born through an uh, an egg donor so it wasn't rachel's egg so there's another an amazing woman an anonymous egg donor who we don't know um and then there'd be awkward questions and you know we'd say are you asking about the egg donor's medical history or the surrogate's medical history and then and they were like oh I don't know really uh, uh mm. I think the surrogate then actually probably <laughs> meant the egg donor it's just there was bits of confusion but actually our experience with midwives it was amazing um 
really well, amazing. I'm delighted to hear that. Uh, I'll pay you your tenor later on for having said <laughs> that. So thank you very much. But no, honestly, I'm thrilled that you had a really positive experience because um, I'm sure, uh, as you've kind of alluded to in a sense already, that not everybody would have been maybe so welcoming or so understanding. Um, and I think it is a really new experience for many midwives and health professionals. I mean, you said that you would advise anyone going through this process to have a meeting with the team first of all, which I think was probably a great shout on your part. Is that because you had heard of other people who maybe hadn't done that and then had met with hostility or, or yeah, what, you, what prompted you that do, from you? You do hear horror stories. I mean, the, the one that you always hear is about babies being handed over in the car park because um, staff in the hospital just being so worried about exploitation and in in many ways rightly so that um it would be like i just cannot let anyone other than the woman who gave birth to this child leave the hospital and so you'd hear stories or you know one thing that was really important to rachel was that she didn't spend the first night with Solly. she wanted immediate and we wanted this as well we wanted to have immediate skin to skin contact with him and the hospital were amazing and they uh, accommodated two adjacent rooms uh, one for uh, Rachel to kind of get a good night's sleep and then one for me and Paul um, with the baby um, and that was really important to her but that's because we'd prepared everything um, in advance the, the, it's tough because um, a lot of the concerns come from a very very good place and it is really important obviously that there's mm. any if there's you know if any uh, concerns about exploitation or any and any needs of safeguarding and, and that kind of stuff is so important. And there were I, there were there were definitely occasions where we'd go to medical appointments and then the, the doctor or the consultant would say, "Can I just speak to Rachel on her own for a bit?" And I hope that that was a kind of I'm just checking you're okay and, and that's great. And I really think that should happen because there is a lot of exploitation um, when it comes to surrogacy, um, particularly outside the UK, um, and it's it's horrible to hear about that. So. I don't blame people for being cautious and it's good that they're asking the right questions to make sure no one's being exploited. Yeah, it sounds like this was really a great balance in a sense of respecting your needs and wishes, but also um, giving Rachel her rights as a sort of um, a surrogate and a gestating parent, if you will. A pregnant woman, yeah. Yeah, yeah a pregnant yeah. woman and, you know, making sure that she was doing everything um, autonomously and independently and, and happily. And as midwives, that's such an essential component of our care that we give the woman the chance to have private time, you know, one-to-one -one time with the midwife or the doctor where she can voice any concerns that maybe um, she wouldn't even want her own partner to know about. And that does happen actually a lot more than you would think. So I'm glad, I'm really glad actually that it, um, it worked. The system worked, it can happen. So that's really it encouraging. I'm sure COVID has made things a lot harder in, many, in every scenario, right? Um, but there are lots of things that wouldn't have been able, we wouldn't have, we, we kind of had our plan. And, and just like I'm sure most people's birth plans have gone um, askew um, or awry with COVID. But um, hopefully things are getting back to normal a bit more. But things like the, the meetings with the midwife, I think that probably would have been harder to pull off and we wouldn't have been able to be at the birth. The truth is it was so early in lockdown, it was literally the first day that they didn't really know what the rules were. So we kind of slipped through. Um, but you know, I am sure a few days later um, we wouldn't have been able to be there, which, you know, we would have dealt with just like everyone's dealt with things during the pandemic. But it was important to us to 
to be there and have that first moment. Um, the first poo that drips down your arm, which is what <laughs> Solly did to me when I held him for the first time. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah. See, just like any other dad, the poo up the arm. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and what was that birth experience like? I mean, I mean, we could do a whole other podcast just about that. But were you glad that you had made the effort and the arrangements to be there? Was it emotional? Was it powerful? What was it like being there on that day? It was like no other experience I could possibly describe. You you know about the altruism and you know um, all obviously, obviously throughout that Rachel was doing an amazing thing for us. But when you're there in the room and, and you see her, your friend, and by, you know, she's one of our closest friends now, and she was by this point, obviously, she's in so much pain um, and, and so much uh, distress to help us. Uh, there was that... We I, 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 we got pretty emotional because of that in the in the delivery room. Um, uh, it, thankfully, it was a very very quick uh, labour for Rachel. Actually, I think we were only in the hospital for an hour and a half before um, uh, the baby was born. But yeah, I'm mean, just intense emotions, shaking. I can remember shaking, uh, crying. Uh, there's an amazing moment where Rachel uh, she was, you know, she was about to give birth very very close and she said stop 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 and she said i want a photo make sure you get a photo of the guys holding the baby as soon as as soon as he comes out she's literally at the end of labor in pain that we could never even imagine and she's just thinking about wanting to get a photo for us and for her and for everyone just to capture that moment um yeah such a special night it was Mm, that's really heroic in a sense I mean to have the presence of mind in that moment as you say just before birth which is indescribably overwhelming to have that presence of mind to think about you guys and to make sure that that you felt loved and included is is making me emotional so Rachel if you're listening that's that's pretty tremendous pretty amazing yeah yeah and just I mean just to kind of sum up I suppose on this whole journey that you've you've been through and, and that you're kindly telling people about, um, we'll avoid the whole, when are you having another one question? Because we don't need to go there. But what would you like people to know about surrogacy? If people could take home one message from what you guys have been through and what you've learned and discovered, what would you like to share with other people? I think... Um, don't go in with misconceptions about what it is. Surrogacy means lots of different things in different parts of the world and for different people. Um, in some parts of the world, um, it's 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 horrific and it and it invo- involves the e- uh, exploitation of women. Um, and you know it it doesn't bear reading about to be honest. But also, it's a it can be a really beautiful altruistic um, thing. So don't. Um, don't think you know about how surrogacy works before you've properly looked into it um, and don't rule it out for ethical reasons um, because I think it's easy to do that without knowing um, exactly how it works. Mm, yeah, and conversations like this I think are so important just to get those messages in people's ears and, and to let people know that that this is um, maybe not exactly what they think it is. Uh, and hopefully this next generation of young people will hear these conversations and see all your baby pictures on Twitter and understand that there are role models for this experience, that it's not Uh, something that's completely foreign. 
And something else I'm really keen to mention is that this isn't just for gay couples as well, and it's, it's a viable way to have children uh, for straight couples with fertility issues as well. We have a lot of friends, uh, women who have MLKH, um, who, or who have suffered lots of uh, unexplained miscarriages, who have started families through surrogacy. Um, it is a totally viable and wonderful route to having children, um, whoever you are. Mm, that's a great point. And just for listeners, just to clarify, so MRKH is um, Meyer-Rokitansky-Kusterhauser syndrome, which affects about one in every 4,500 women. And um, women with MRKH are born without a uterus and sometimes without a vagina or just with a partial vagina. So yeah, absolutely. Surrogacy is a route that some of these women choose to go down. Um, and as you say, women, men, all parents might choose to look into this uh, route to parenthood for any number of reasons. It's not as simple, like you said, as having just a glass of wine and whoops, we've got a baby. <laughs> it's something that you have to think quite carefully about. Um, so thank you so much again, Robin. We'll, we'll wind it up there, but that's fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us. So lovely to chat to you, Leah. Thank you. Thank you so much to today's guest, Robin Morgan Bentley. And thanks to you for listening to What the Midwife Said. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to review and subscribe to the podcast. Tell me what you thought on Instagram at Leah Hazard. Tell your friends and join me next time.